welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I'm your host, John Cribbs, and we again are talking about the James Bond movies by decade with my very special guest, movie and comic book reviewer, Mr. John Arminio. How you doing today, sir? I am doing great, and it's a joy to be back, so thank you so much. Thank you for coming back. It's always a joy to have you on, and we, we are talking about, well, I'm just going to lay it out, lay it all out there. I'm not going to beat about the bush. Uh, this decade of Bond, 1980s Bond, is my favorite era of Bond, personally. That's a controversial thing to say, perhaps, but I feel like it's important to get it out there just right in front, just to make, just to say it. That's what's your um, response to that? <laughs> I, I, I think I'm gonna have to agree with you. Oh um, wow! I, I think okay. <laughs> well. You- you look like you were going to actually just hang up on me. I was worried for there. Well, because um, I think so much of my Bond fandom defies logic. Uh, you know, he's sort of like a misogynist, womanizing, alcoholic, lonely murderer. Why do I love this guy so much? It doesn't make <laughs> sense. Um, but then Octopussy doesn't make much sense. <laughs> so it's perfect. I think the two best Bond movies are... Uh, for much with love and casino royale and those are pretty far away from this era of bond but that does not um stymie my love for this series of movies at all but these films are captured right in the middle of those two so yeah. that's kind of a kind of comfort zone there yeah yeah i think that's exactly it, it all of these movies um occupy a sort of comfort zone especially the this uh, sort of roger moore trilogy it, it just feels good to be watching him uh foil insane billionaires over and over again <laughs> i know and it could have gone on forever if someone finally didn't put a stop to it <laughs> yeah. sir roger would have stayed in there as long as he could have um but it's a it's an interesting time and i think you know the idea of talking about these films by decade is uh particularly pertinent to this era because 1989 november what happens right what's the huge event that happens in the world the berlin wall coming down right the symbolic death of the cold war and uh possibly an end of bond films being what we expected them to be up until that point because it's all been about you know all this espionage and spy work behind the iron curtain and speaking of which i should just mention that speaking of walls coming down uh this is going to be the first episode of this we've done that's going to be available to all listeners going to be outside of our patreon wall uh and i'll just mention to anyone who wants to hear our past episodes on uh, 60s bond and 70s bond uh they are available still for patreon subscribers if you'd like to get uh access to those or early access to these episodes that we're recording right now uh you get those through our patreon still along with other exclusive incentives i should mention that um those uh, those episodes are available and they're great i really enjoy talking with john about these films and uh so if you like what you hear and you want to hear our assessment of the past bond films uh that would be a way to do it but uh, the uh, pink smoke always does outstanding work um it's totally worth the patreon but now that it's uh outside of the paywall i'm excited to be able to um pressure everyone i know <laughs> to, to listen to them there's no excuse now right exactly. um uh, but 80s bond so to, sorry about that little diversion there uh, 80s bond is the era for me of john glenn right he directed all five of the eon films uh he assembled himself a stellar action crew including arthur wooster doing second unit willie bogner doing the ski sequences uh remy julian doing the uh, velic- vil- uh, vilicular stunts 
as well as BJ Worth and Randy DeLuca doing the aerial specialist and uh, Bob Simmons, of course, being the classic uh, stunt ranger. So these films, I think what you said about them being just flat out fun is pretty much nails it because these are just, these are films specifically made to be as engaging as they, as they can be air, sky, water, whatever. I think John Glenn uh, is an unsung hero of the bond series for bringing this into this new era when uh, you know, the bond series was changing and they had to rethink a lot of things about how they're going to approach it. Uh, some of his decisions maybe are controversial. And again, I think we'll be talking about those, but uh, for me on the whole, I think like that's what makes this decade so fun and so special because he was able to, um, you know, some people may say that they lack style compared to some of the earlier movies. And I'm, I don't even deny that. I think that a lot of the key personnel are missing from the, that era of bond. Um, but the no bond films have long discussions about the photographic genius of Alan Hume, for example, you know, but, but these guys are terrific. You know, they, they really stepped up and brought bond, I think into a new era. So for me, I think that's why this transition of Bond is important. Yeah, and I think uh, John Glenn was sort of the perfect director for for this series of Bond because he he for a director of big franchise films, I think he had very little ego uh, because he came from you know editing and second unit directing, and so he was able to fit into the um, Bond movie making machine really well. Um, and even at certain points when Roger Moore and Cubby Broccoli were negotiating for um, Roger Moore's next contract, because he only had a three-picture deal initially, so every subsequent movie he had to renegotiate his contract and even ask for more money. So Cubby Broccoli would then tell John Glenn to start pre-production to sort of get Roger Moore to come to the negotiating table or... Um, you know, so he was sort of willing to be a pawn to yeah, on production, saving money on Roger Moore's contract. And it's hard to imagine other directors being willing to, to do that and to fit, um, you know, the, the larger schema of Bond into, like, into their own world rather than try to dominate it. And I mean, uh, John Landis was actually approached to direct, I think it was um, License to Kill, but he said no because... Like, what do you want me to do? I'm, I'm just going to be part of the machine, but John Glenn was willing to be part of the machine. It was part of the machine. I mean, we talked last time about what a great sort of family business Albert Broccoli turned this into, not only his actual family, his daughter and his son-in-law, but anyone who kind of became part of the Bond films tended to stay on the series yeah. for a long period of time. And in John Glenn's case, you know, moving up, of course, from uh, directing second unit on, on Her Majesty's Secret Service and then being the editor for several films. Uh, to finally get to be in the director's seat and again kind of bring that expertise and that knowledge that he'd had that he accrued over the years to these films uh you get a real great lived in sort of sense uh that someone someone who's in the seat who knows what they're doing uh what else should we say about this era it's obviously it's the era of short story adaptations right they'd run out of ian fleming novels uh, other than casino royale so they uh didn't have the rights to those so the the titles and the elements from the 007 short stories were used uh, but none of them are flat out Ian Fleming adaptations. Of course, in the past, they'd done Diamonds Are Forever and other films where that really had little to do, Moonraker, that had little to do with Ian Fleming's book. But this is the first time that they're really kind of being forced to come up with original scenarios and kind of making it, you know, this is now 
a franchise that is kind of running on, <laughs> not running on empty, but kind of, you know, having to find its own fuel. Yeah, and especially a short story like View to a Kill, it's a great title, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the content of, of the film. And you do get uh, certain great elements, like uh, in For Your Eyes Only, um, like the the sort of basic plot of a, a woman seeking revenge for her murdered parents, you know, who wields a bow and arrow or, or a crossbow. Um, and you get certain recycled elements that haven't been used yet, like the shark attack on Felix Leiter for a license to kill. Uh, um, but, you know, eventually you're just going to run out of material. Um, and, and I think because the Bond films had been, had veered so far from the Fleming source material. I mean, just Roger Moore, I think is as much as I love Roger Moore, he's not Fleming's bond. So I think as soon as you made live and let die, you were bound to diverge from Fleming's uh, version of the character from then on. Yeah. It definitely became its own thing because of that. Um, uh, it was a terrible error to be a bond assistant is something I noticed. Uh, yeah. Herrera, VJ, Tippett, and Chuck Lee, Saunders, Felix, and Sharky, uh, RIP, right? I mean, it's like being a dirty, hairy uh, partner or something, uh, being teamed up with Roger Moore in the 80s or Timothy Dalton in the 80s. Uh, not a good time. It was never a good time, but this especially, I just want to say all my regrets to those guys who showed up in these films. But um, there was some great casting in all those sidekick roles. So, it, you know, again, I'll credit to Young Productions for not being afraid to put somebody with their main character who can kind of go toe-to-toe with him. And it was great fun, especially in Video Kill, to watch Patrick McNee kind of do fun, like, <laughs> jokes with, with Roger Moore. And, and they kind of came up together. Uh, and they'd been old pros since, like, the 50s. So it was, it was great to see them have, like, uh, c- comic scenes together. Oh, definitely. No, I think the casting in, in general in this area is very good, except for a few exceptions, which we're going to get to. Mm. Um, but uh, on that note, we should go ahead and dive in to 1981's For Your Eyes Only. Um, and again, I just, just for the sake of just being completely open and not secretive at all, this is my favorite Bond movie, John. Oh, wow. I love it. I love this movie, which is funny to say because the opening is silly, the ending is stupid. <laughs> The, yes. villain, the villain ain't great. And the henchman is kind of a weak Red Grant clone, you know, or maybe a Vargas mm. clone, as we know he does not drink, does not smoke, does not make love. What yeah. do you do, Kriegler? Um, and the inclusion of Lynn Holly Johnson as BB doll is pretty cringeworthy by mm. itself. There are lots of flaws, but there's so much to love in this movie. What does this movie have? This movie has The Sinking of the St. George's, great scene. It has the crossbow death dive of Gonzalez, taken from the short story flawlessly executed it's got gliding down the hills of madrid actually carfu in a canary yellow citron 2 cv as the chestnuts fly and the bullets sing to quote my friend paul cooney it's got the identigraph taken from the goldfinger novel which is dated but looks pretty impressive still it's a pretty cool gadget uh it has carol bouquet as melina havelock the crossbow slinging elector getting revenge for the murder of her parents and every time she lets down that long silk hair oh my goodness I mean, she even looks amazing underwater, although I don't know if you know this, those scenes were not shot underwater. The close-ups of her, of Carol Bouquet, she had an inner ear condition. And that's all effects shots. Did you know that? I did. And that, when I found that out, they, it, it blew my mind. It, it does look a little strange. 
um, just because of how it's paced and the way that like, their hair is moving, but it, it does not look like it was filmed on dry land. If you didn't know, you would never know. Yeah. Is the yeah. thing. They used wind machines and slow motion and uh, they put bubbles over it. It just looks, it looks incredible. I can't believe that uh, that's a special effect. Uh, it's got Milos Colombo and more than acceptable Karim Bay surrogate. Uh, it's got them being keyholed across the corals, of the shark infested Ioni Sea, uh, scaling the hill at St. Uh, Cyril's and Metoria. Uh, I never know how to say this, uh, but of course, uh, care of the great Rick Sylvester, who did the skiing off the hill stunt for Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, all this stuff is so great, man, that uh, it's just the right amount of great, too. It's a perfect balance, which is another thing I want to say about these movies is, you know, John Glenn, of course, brings his editorial skills. These are all supremely well-edited films. They have a consistent tone. Uh, the action scenes are just beat for beat perfect. And I think that has a lot to do with why John Glenn's era of the Bond films is considered a golden era by me. Mm. I, yeah, I do wish the opening did not exist in this movie. Yeah. Because I, I like the fact that they're acknowledging the death of Tracy Bond. And when Roger Moore gets to act that, it's really great to see him get serious for, you know, a hot second. Although her but, tombstone says wife of James Bond. Yeah. They were for five <laughs> minutes. Is that really what she's remembered for? The wife of, come on, come on movie. Uh, and, and so, and you know, there's that whole stupid Blofeld thing and the, I'll buy you a delicatessen in stainless steel, which was <laughs> just inserted. So Cubby Broccoli could get a weird, obscure inside joke stab at Saltzman. Like that's it. <laughs> uh, but, but I agree. I, th- I think this is the most underrated uh, Bond movie. Like the Greek locations are absolutely breathtaking. Like not only in in the villages and and the and and kind of the the beautiful um, beach scenes uh, in the island of Corfu, but the the climax at the monasteries on those amazing pillars of rock and the great stunts of the rock climbing. It's nothing looks like it in movies, especially of this era. And the fact that they were able to capture that sort of majestic uh, scenery that you can never get anywhere because you had the, the wonderful juxtaposition of like uh, Greek Orthodox Christian architecture with that magnificent landscape, I think it is something that, you know, you, you would never see anywhere else. And um, Peter Lamont, um, who's another kind of unsung hero because he had the uh, inenviable task of following Ken Adam. Um, but he really does a great job of building sets and make you believe that that is the interior of those uh, monasteries. And, uh, you know, a famous story is that the the bishop of these monasteries allowed the Bond crew to film there, but the monks who actually inhabited it put up barricades and put up flags and, and sort of like, and like clotheslines to make it so that their shots didn't match. Like they were very wily in ways to prevent um, the Bond crew from doing anything useful. So it fell to Peter Lamont to fill in the gaps of this one-of-a-kind landscape, and I think he does so uh, beautifully. Um, yeah, yeah, that's gorgeous. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's a that's an obnoxious thing to have to get around, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I, lo- I love Topol, just hands down. Uh, Fiddle on the Roof, it pro- might be my favorite musical of all time. Flash Gordon is one of my favorite movies. And um, 
you know, everything. And he's just another one of these characters from in the Bond franchise that is just like an unabashedly great human being. So I, I want to I wanna get this right. Um, in 1967, Topol founded Variety Israel, an organization serving children with special needs. He's also a co-founder and chairman of the board of Jordan River Village, a year-round camp for Arab and Jewish children with life-threatening illnesses, which opened in 2012. So he's, you know, devoting his life to helping sick children and crossing the Arab Israel divide. And so it's just like another way for me to enjoy this movie, like, ah, oh, Topol, eating pistachios nonstop. <laughs> And he he's actually uses that, right? Yeah, the thing that all actors do now, like Brad Pitt's always munching yeah. on stuff in movies, and it's like that's Topol's thing. And he even uses it as a practical device. Like he throws the the pistachio shells, and that gives away the uh, henchman right. location. It's great, that's great. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, Topol's got a real infectious persona in this movie. Like you know, as soon as he, you realize. I mean, I don't know if anyone is tricked by the idea that he's the villain of the piece. That, yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, they kind of try to make that you know sort of a. Uh, surprise but uh as soon as bond gets to know him and just that first scene together you know where he immediately doesn't trust him and then by the end of it they're you know sharing drinks and they're ready to go and knock down some drug dealers it's like yeah it's like a yeah. great like high five type moment there so he says the bond you have thrasos guts guts <laughs> that's awesome yeah topol is fantastic um a lot of little moments i love in this movie i love Locke, the assassin silently stopping his subordinate from interfering uh, when they're grabbing Bond. He wants to size him up, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A nemesis. I love that the, vill- I love the villagers helping Bond and Melina flip over the car after during the chase, you know, when they all kind of get together and do that. It's a nice community moment. I love Bond, um, of course, giving his pursuers the nod, the little Roger Moore in a nutshell, right, as they're mm. careening down this hill. The guys are sh- shooting at him, and they side up next to each other, and he looks out the window, gives him a little nod. <laughs> Uh, and that's definitely Roger Moore there because uh, there's a Saint episode where he does the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. The guys are chasing him and he gives them the kind of gentlemanly nod um, when he's being chased by the guys and he goes into the ski lift and the elevators close. Whoops, no, that isn't. And the killers are in the lift with him. That's a nice little moment of suspense. Um, we are only five men and one woman. Great line. Um, and Melina healing the guy that she just shot is a really nice moment. Yeah. Uh, and Moore's reading of that's Detot, comrade. You don't have it. I don't have it. Love it. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of gold stars in this movie. Just fantastic moments like that. And they're all little moments. You know, it's not like big, giant action set pieces because those are taken care of. Like we already know those are going to be good. But these are little human moments that are inserted into it that I love too. Uh, and Bond's relationship with Melina, telling her she's going to have to dig the two graves, which is something directly from Fleming's story, uh, is a really cool kind of thing to be a subplot to what's going all the intrigue that's going on with the uh the atac device and things like that yeah and it, it's such a great line and it's such so in keeping with roger moore's portrayal of bond and it's you know thematically linked to the atac device at the end which is what makes me hate the opening sequence so much because it's just bond getting revenge <laughs> uh so but Good point. regardless Good point. um but I do also love um, Bond, kick, Bond kicking the car off the cliff. Like he he has a little pin in his hands and he throws it in the car. But it, that just twinge of like sinking his teeth into killing this dirtbag henchman. Like you can really understand his his anger, and it's a, it's a great moment. Like because Roger Moore is so suave and charming when he shows that little anger it's so effective and i really like that scene 
Yeah, that's his prof- Professor Dent scene, right? That's his cold-blooded murder, which yeah. Moore and uh, John Glenn actually argued about on set mm-hmm. because Moore didn't think his Bond would kick that car over. You know, he would throw him the, the pin, the dove pin, uh, but then he just kind of let the car go over by itself. And I think Glenn was in the right. It's it's such an intense scene where he's chasing Locke, you know, on foot, uh, you know, all the way down the street and, you know, onto the hill and everything like that. Um uh, that's nothing I think you think of in Bond films very often, but it's uh, but it's iconic in its own way because it really kind of leaves Bond without his devices, which is what this film mm-hmm. was all about. You know, first they blow up his uh, his car, you know, the, the cool car that's going to be in this one, and he gets this little <laughs> two CV to, to drive down the hill after giving it a look. Um, I think what they're trying to go for is that it's not the car, it's not the it's the man. You know, the man yeah. is is going to accomplish his mission, even if one guy is tearing away in a car he's going to run down all the steps and all the hills and catch up with this guy and kill him if that's what he intends to do and that i think is just a great way to stake out this era of bond to say you know he doesn't need you know devices are fun but bond isn't about the devices it's about the the man the attitude yeah he's he's gonna scale the sheer rock face by himself and even somehow survive a hundred foot fall just by a rope tied to his tied to his waist. Yeah. Um, yeah. No bond by himself going up, scaling yeah. that wall and taking on the guys himself. I mean, that's, that's it. That's what this era is all about for me. And that, that, that climax is just amazing. Yeah. And I even like the way he, he, he kills um, Kriegler. Uh, you know, he's just getting the crack kicked out of him, And, you know, this overconfident blonde, you know, you know, a, uh, C plus uh, Superman kind of character. He he picks up this like huge potted plant, and Roger Moore just like shoves a stick at it, and it knocks him off balance, and he falls out of a window and dies. I think that's a great moment and shows you why Bond is still alive after all these years. After all these, you know, you know, Red Grant successors have tried to kill him. Yeah, because we know that he's not going to be able to stand up to Kriegler on a physical level, right? He's yeah. going to kill him. Bond sees the opportunity and he takes it. You know, that's sort of like, that's the smarter, the smarter choice. That's sort of the Bond way. I agree. That's a great moment too. Um, I love this movie. It has two, two actors, two veterans from, from Ken Russell movies as Michael Gothard playing Locke. He's from the devils. And then uh, you also see Paul Brook from Lair of the White Worm in there. Uh, mm. It's nice to know that the Bond and Ken Russell films yeah. <laughs> kind of share the same universe in that way. What are your thoughts on um, on the song, on the theme song, the only one featuring the artist in the actual title credits? Oh, yeah. uh, I think that's a great song. Um, you know, uh, Bill Conti. Uh, who who didn't do a, a great job in the score to this movie? Uh, it sounds like okay. I think he did okay, considering. <laughs> Again, like you know Peter Lamont, it's not an enviable task to take yeah. over. Yeah, Barry, you know. But but, but I, I think the title song is a great song, and you know initially he was hesitant to uh, use Sheena Easton because you know, at the time she was known for uh, uh, that uh, nine to five morning train song, which is pretty forgettable '80s pap. Uh, but she really hits a home run uh, for this ballad. And so I'm, I'm glad that uh, her and Bill Conti were able to collaborate on that, that song. Yeah, the passions that collide in me, the wild abandoned side of me. That's a great lyric. Yeah, That's really good. Um, and I guess Maurice Bender fell in, fell in love with Sheena Easton by all accounts. And that's the reason that she ends up in the uh, title sequence is because he felt he thought her eyes were 
completely mm. transfixing that she had to be in this title sequence where not even Paul McCartney got to be in the title sequence of Little I mean, Time. Yeah, the way she looks in, in that title sequence, it's not difficult to imagine her falling in love with her. <laughs> it really isn't. Um, yeah, I like the song a lot too. Um, one of the weirder scenes in the movie we should bring up, hockey players who try to check Bond to death. <laughs> yeah. And, scene. Yeah, especially because the score like totally cuts out in that scene, so it's just the sound effects of an empty ice rink. So it, it is a little weird. Um, I mean, if you're gonna, if you just want to beat a guy to death, I, I guess you should, could just come out with a gun and shoot him. I don't know why. Because we have to imagine that these henchmen got hockey gear and <laughs> all got dressed up in the locker room <laughs> to, to come out at the same time. Because it's not like they're in disguise as a hockey team during a hockey game. They're just... And armoring up to they're all like, suited up yeah i, I don't know <laughs> that so, takes so, time and they just yeah. assumed the bomb was going to be out there long enough for them to kind of come out and do their little business and yeah eat around them for a minute before actually attacking uh a very strange uh, method there and roger moore actually broke his clavicle on this scene uh because he wasn't used to doing falls on on ice uh so uh not totally worth it i guess uh, <laughs> indeed it's uh it's bizarre. It almost feels like somebody, one of the writers, came up, like had a nightmare about being attacked by hockey guys and thought, wouldn't it be scary if you're on the ice and these hockey guys just suddenly started attacking you instead of the puck? <laughs> and apparently somebody was working the scoreboard because when Bond tosses a guy through the hockey net, <laughs> the home team gets a point. No, the, the henchmen decide to keep a guy on the score. <laughs> Yeah, I could like help you guys. I mean, I got like a sniper. Nope, nope. You got to keep score over there. <laughs> uh, it's strange, but again, I don't know. This film is so strong in other areas. It seems mm. like that they, you know, they don't bother me at all. It's they're weird, but you know, that's that's the worst thing I have to say about them. Uh, again, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I I just like that this really does set the tone for um the, I mean, I guess um. Uh, for, um sorry, the spy who loved me uh, kind of initiated the whole idea of detente uh, in the Bond films and the Russians and the and the British working together. But I think this sets the, a tone for uh, the the rest of the eighties. And you know, and it's nice that the Bond films are actually sort of optimistic about like Russian cooperation with the West, and that you know they're not evil over there. There's just this sort of um, not quite uh, benevolent influence and there are honorable people, um, you know, like General Gogol over there in, in high positions of power who are willing to work with us for the betterment of world peace and for action movies kind of have that message. It's kind of nice. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they get them even more in the next movie. Uh, yeah. But you're right. I like that as far back as Spy Who Loved Me, I think it kind of sets up this idea that the Russians are, just kind of doing what the British are doing just for their country and everyone's sort of looking out for their yeah. own interest. And uh, it doesn't necessarily make them bad guys. It just makes them people who are like any other country, you know, paranoid about, you know, <laughs> their defenses, you know, insecure about other countries uh, advantages over them. And uh, that's interesting. But I think a another kind of step that this film takes is being about sort of the little people who are in between all these things. Mm -hmm. As much as Christanos is not a great bond villain, he's a little bit milk toast. Uh, I love that, you know, these guys are just common smugglers, you know, criminals who have been enlisted by, you know, the Russians to try to get this device uh, from them. And 
even Melina, whose parents are murdered, you know, in the middle of that becomes this person who kind of gets involved with it, who really has nothing to do with it, who shouldn't even be, uh, and should never meet James Bond, should never be part of his world, but, you know, kind of gets thrust into it. Um, And how Bond has to kind of, you know, protect her and and look out for her at the same time that she's watching his back, uh, which is um, interesting because, you know, this is uh, the short, in the short story, pretty much, um, Bond is pretty much not even in the short story. Mm. It's her story that Bond kind of just happens into. You know, Bond is sent to kill these guys, but she's there on a personal mission because they killed her parents. Uh, so it's, I don't know if it's, just say it's a stronger sort of, you know, female lead for these movies, but uh, you could argue that some of the stronger parts of the movie are more her story than Bond's and that he's sort of um, taking care of his stuff and then kind of sliding into her story at the same time. Yeah, especially because the the attack is such a pure MacGuffin that it, it what it does or what its function is it doesn't matter. It, the emotional story of of her is sort of the this the, the strongest kind of thematic through line of the film. Yeah, yeah, and uh, not that the attack stuff doesn't lead to some very cool things. I mean, the underwater exactly, yeah, 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 was so great. Retrieving the attack is is so cool, and then the. Uh, sort of inner space type scene where the giant, the guy in the giant yeah. comes in after them with the claws and everything uh, leading up to the key uh, hauling scene. There's a, uh, there's just so much fun to be had in all of this and so much beautiful underwater photography and fake underwater photography involved. And there's been a lot of um, two long underwater sequences in James Bond movies, but I think the underwater stuff in this movie is much better paced and spaced throughout the film, and you actually get some atmosphere and, and creepiness with, yeah. uh, with, with with those scenes, so that's nice. And more intimate, too, because you have yeah. a limited amount of characters, and you kind of are, you know, you're invested in what's going on with them as opposed to just tons of guys and, you know, having a little underwater war as in Thunderball. Um, but yeah, here I think the underwater stuff is thrilling. It's a lot of fun mm-hmm. and uh, doesn't uh, doesn't go on. Even though it's a long sequence, it doesn't kind of bog the film down at all because it's yeah. all something fun happening in it. Um, this is the last appearance, uh, I should mention, of um, Victor Torjansky, who has had an appearance as the Bond, the drunk who reacts to Bond's antics <laughs> in uh, Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. Uh, this is sort of John Glenn kind of can't help himself type stuff where he just has to cut to that guy going, whoa, whenever Bond is doing one of his crazy things. Uh, so thankfully he retired that character. <laughs> this movie. I, uh, I, yeah, some of that stuff I just don't understand. Like you just have to interject some Looney Tunes type nonsense <laughs> into this. Like, isn't this ski ski chase like amazing and like great pure cinema no we got to put this doofus <laughs> telling us how to react yeah yeah that's that's a flaw in john glenn but i think you know you can at least defend it by saying roger moore sort of brings the looney tunes at yeah, yeah, yeah. To his you know proceedings and so it doesn't feel entirely out of place yeah uh, uh, i just like to imagine um a, uh, Willie Bogner, who had to tie a rope from him to a bobsled because bobsleds go downhill uh, faster than skis in order to film the rear of the bobsled in the ski chase sequence uh, consistently. But then every time um, the bobsled turned a corner, there was a risk that he would then go either flying out of the bobsled track or careening into the bobsled. So it's nice that 
he risked his life to get this shot so John Glenn can undercut that with, with a, a drunk mugging for the camera. I'm sure Rick Sylvester appreciated that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, or Willie Bogner, sorry. Um, yeah, I just, this is just such a, I, I'm never not in the mood for this one. I mean, I pretty much watch, I pretty much have like a litmus test in terms of like which Bond film I would, if it turned on TV, I'll watch any film for five, 10 minutes. This one, I think I got to watch it to the end if it's on. It's just like that. It's that familiar. It's that personal. There's a, there is a lot yeah. of sentiment to this era of Bond for me in this era uh, is the first Bond movie I ever saw in this era is the first Bond movie I ever saw in the theater. And, um, and so for your eyes only is just one that I, because I've seen so many times, it's just one of those that just kind of attached to the heart. If you know what I mean? Yeah. This is actually the first Bond movie I ever saw. It oh, was, wow. yeah, it was at a, um, a family gathering and it was more of like a, an adult oriented thing. And I was just kind of like roaming, roaming the house. Um, this is in my family in, in New Jersey. Uh, and, my parents always like rolled their eyes when I want to watch TV at family gatherings, but because this wasn't really geared towards like an eight or nine year old, they let me watch TV. And uh, as soon as I turned on the TV, it was James Bond. And my dad had to actually tell me what it was. And I was like, Oh, this is a James Bond movie. Um, and so I always look on the film fondly. Oh, that's great. Um, just, just to wrap up, I would say, you know, I agree. From Mercy with Love, Casino Royale are some of the be- among the best Bond films. I don't know if I would argue about For Your Eyes Only being the one of the best, but it's my favorite mm-hmm. for sure, you know? So it's got sort of that going for it. Like even I forgive all of its, you know, hockey goofiness and, and drunks, you know, reacting because there's just so much good stuff in this. And uh, I remember too, I had shown uh, Chris Funderburg uh, Goldfinger and he hated it did not like it at all and so i said oh well i don't want you to have leave bond with a bad taste so i showed him this one and he loved it you know? awesome yeah i think this might even be and I, there's another movie in this era i think would be a a good bond movie for people who don't necessarily love bond you know i think that just the action level of it alone and mm-hmm. the suspense is good enough and the story's engaging enough that even if you're missing some of the usual bond antics this is a, just a great action movie in its own right and really, how many other action movies end with a horny Margaret Thatcher? <laughs> oh, Mr. Bond. To be fair. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher getting turned on by a parrot. Um, uh, yeah, what's, well, oh, I had a question about, I, I know you love my trivia questions, John. Mm. And I wanted to ask you, based on the key-holding scene, where Bond spends lots of time in the water, can you name the only movie of the Sean Connery era, the Roger Moore era, and the Timothy Dalton era where Bond does not get wet. I mean, totally submerged in water. Now, of these three movies, he's on a boat in all three of them, but he is not in the water itself. Um, I don't know. Hit, hit me with the answers. First one for Connery is From Russia With Love. Okay. He's on the boat at the end, of course. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, second one, uh, more is a Man With Golden Gun, where he's on the, what they call it, the Klong, uh, the boat in Thailand, but he never actually gets wet. And the Dalton is the child in the water, but not not himself. John's on the water, but not. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Living Daylights, uh, Dalton lands on the boat uh, in the parachute at the very beginning of the movie. Oh uh, yeah. Throughout the rest of the movie, stays away from water. I mentioned that because it almost seems like Roger Moore's Bond's kryptonite is water in a weird way, uh, or at least the bad guys are under that impression. They dunk him into the water with the shark and live and let die. Uh, of course, there's a water-based baddie in Spy Who Loved Me. There's the Anaconda in uh, Moonraker. 
dragging him underwater in this movie and then uh, the wall of water at the end of View to a Kill. Mm. So it seems like villains just love throwing water at him, <laughs> throwing him into the water uh, is their idea of uh, what's going to... A, a soaked Roger Moore, apparently, is what they think was going to be the defeated Bond. You know, I think because um, Roger Moore is always so put together that getting him wet, he, it's like at a point in the movie when you need to take him down a peg, okay, well... Get his suit jacket soaked, and he's it's like he's the pie not in the as elegant. Roger Moore, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> taking a little starts out of that stuff, sure. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, let's move to the next one the, the one of two James Bond movies released in 1983. Uh, Mr. Arminio, what do you think of Octopussy? Um, yeah, this is another just absolutely gorgeous looking uh, uh James Bond movie. The sets in India, the locations are k- kind of jaw-dropping, especially like the, the octopusy um, uh, island palace. Uh, the, both the interiors and the exteriors are, are gorgeous. Um, the production actually used that as a hotel uh, for, for their shoot. Must be nice. Um, but it's also a movie that makes no sense in the plot. Because, you know, this, I love General Orlov. He's an absolute psychopath from frame one. He hams it up like he's Mussolini. Uh, well, give <laughs> outing in the, uh, in the first scene with all the other generals. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, he's just so like childlike, like about to have just a big fit. <laughs> I mean, his plan is to make copies of Let's see if I can get this, even like explain this coherently. His plan is to make copies of Soviet treasures like Fabergé eggs and then steal the originals and sell them, but put the copies back in the Soviet treasury so nobody knows they're stolen and sell them at auction so then he can have the, enough money to buy and smuggle a nuclear weapon via a circus into the West <laughs> to explode. Now, I don't know why it's easier for a general in the Soviet army to get access to people who can copy precious jewels and not just get access to a nuclear weapon. Uh, but <laughs> uh, but that's, that's all kind of like immaterial because the, it's just so much fun to be along this insane ride with this crazy villain and, you know, some gorgeous set locations and Q flying a hot air balloon. <laughs> That's right. The uh, hot air balloon all rigged and ready for him to <laughs> lie in and save the day just in time. <laughs> uh, this one always seemed like a half realized movie to me. Uh, it doesn't have much of a hook, you know, and I've always wondered why, because I certainly enjoy this movie and I like it. I think it's really good. Um, but compared to the other ones, there's just something off. There's something missing. And watching it this time, I think, I mean, I've said in the past that uh, when I heard that they were considering casting Persis Kambata, the actress of uh, Star Trek, the motion picture and Nighthawks and Megaforce as Octopussy. Uh, it was one of those things I wish I had never heard because now I want, I wish that movie had happened and I feel completely unreasonably angry that it didn't, you know, it's like hearing that Warren Beatty was going to be cast in kill bill originally as bill mm-hmm. and thinking, man, that would have been something like, you know, I really wanted to see that movie. Uh, and they, 
ended up casting Maude Adams, uh, recasting her actually from uh, Man with Golden Gun as Octopussy. And she is by far the weak link, I think. Not just her as an actress, but as a character, I think. What is she doing? What does she do in this movie? I mean, she runs the, she owns the circus, I guess, that they're using. And by the way, I should mention, I read uh, that that was based on a real thing. I can remember if it was a Russian or a German circus was smuggling diamonds uh, and smuggling jewels. And so they thought, hey, that sounds like a great idea for our Bond movie. Um, but she's, she's there, but she's not really there. I don't know. I feel like I, she's not a strong enough presence in this film. And it might be because they tried to make her somewhat mysterious, like Dr. No for the first half of the movie. But for a movie titled after her character, if yeah. you're going to take the, 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 the term octopusy from the book and make it a actual human character, she's got to be something real special. I mean, almost knocking bond off of his, you know, uh, off of the billboard, you know, I think they should have made her the villain. She should have been the main villain, like a Goldfinger or a man with a golden gun or a doctor. No, I think that would have been a lot more compelling. Uh, and I feel like they had, maybe we're headed in that direction since she's working with, uh, the bad guys in this one with Kamal Khan and the other guys, but they never really make a decision on what she's supposed to be. What do you think about, what are your thoughts on that? I don't know. That's, that's kind of how I'm leaning. Yeah. Because it seems like the villain role is split between her and Kamal Khan. Because if she's running the circus and the smuggling operation, what is Kamal Khan doing? And you know, if Kamal Khan is so nefarious that he's willing to, let a nuclear device explode um, in an American airbase, killing hundreds of thousands of people and initiating a nuclear war just for money. And she's do and he's doing that all under Octopussy's nose. You know, so what is their relationship? It's it seems very kind of nonsensical. Yeah, and when so, he has scenes with her, he comes off like a complete weak suck. I mean, he seems yeah. like He's just, you know, he has to be nice for her, for her to fund his operations. Uh, you know, he's just brown nosing her the entire time. So it makes him seem like a weak character. And again, I don't know if maybe it was going for a twist, like, oh no, he's actually the guy who would murder lots of people. Um, but it's just bizarre. It's, it's, it's just not as well thought out as it could have been. Yeah. I think is the main problem. And I feel like Maude Adams uh, isn't bad in the movie. She's just... I feel like she didn't have enough to go with, you know, to make that a compelling character. If it's going to be the title of the movie, I think you need to make us really care about who that character is and what she's doing, you know, uh, other than, you know, pulling out the gun and, you know, shooting off the, uh, the sh- revealing the bomb for bond to get in there and, and, uh, and disarm. She practically does nothing in the movie, you know, other than fall for bond, which is you know, yeah. too bad. Like that's all she is there to do. I, I do love the um, tete-a-tete between Bond and uh, Kamal Khan because I think Louis Jordan is like this like lubricated reptile of a character. <laughs> like he's he's perfect. Um, I, I love like when he's explaining how he's going to extract information from James Bond. He just sort of you know adds fifteen extra syllables <laughs> into his sentences like. <laughs> How are you going to get information from me? Sodium pentothal? Pen, sodium pentothal? A bit crude. Very unreliable. We, we prefer curare. It's, he's Mr. Just, Bond is indeed a very rare breed. He's terrific. I like him in the movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so 
yeah, I think Purchase Kambada would have been a wonderful addition to, to the film. And I think, yeah, you would have had to sort of, I don't know, finagle the character relationship so things make more sense. So I guess if you flipped the villain operation in that um, Orlov had a nuclear device that he was then paying the the circus to smuggle into uh, the American Abrace rather than all this stuff with the the jewels. And and I mean, a testament to the prop department, the, the, that Fabergé egg looks amazing, um, but it just sort of contributes to the clogged nature of the narrative. And then, because yeah. I, I, I like Maude Adams as an actress, so I think maybe if you were to recast her in a perfect universe, maybe she could have ended up uh, as Stacy Sutton in View to a Kill. And in that way, maybe the, the, oh, ages of, yeah. the ages of those two leads would have been less, um, <laughs> uh, a, a little less, a little less stark in age differences. That's not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea. But for, for, for Octopussy, she's the title of the movie. You got that iconic yeah. newsy poster with the arms wrapped around Bond, like she's going to be, you know, the one to ensnare him and not vice versa, you know? Yeah. Um, as presented, she's not any more pivotal to the plot than Countess Liesel. Uh, Alisi in the uh, for, for your eyes only, which who we didn't even mention, you know, because she yeah, yeah, yeah. comes and goes so quickly. Uh, or even Magda, the character in this movie, has more to do than Octopussy does, and is a more compelling female presence. Uh, so if they just could have done something to make her more interesting, I, th- I really think it's a, a failure of the writers more than yeah. the actors in, that, in this case. But I love Gobinda as a as a henchman. He's outstanding. He just has this like in- incredible presence. I think he. Um, he might be the handsomest henchman. He's a good-looking um, guy. Yeah, um, but I think he he pulls off that intimidating Superman character a lot better. And I think, you know, but by sheer dint of of him being Indian, I think it, it makes him a little unique and provides a, a nice uh, different energy uh, to to the proceedings. Bond asking him if he wants to come for a night. I don't suppose oh, you'd like yeah. a night <laughs> That is a great <laughs> moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, no, he's great. Apparently the, the actor suggested, uh, I know lots of like cool magic, like mythology, that uh, Indian magic mythology, we could like include this character. He could like levitate and do all kinds of crazy, like, you know, magic stuff on Bond. <laughs> the producers are like, we're making an effort to make Bond yeah. a little more grounded. So... We're going to pass on that. No, uh, no voodoo or solitaire in this one. Um, but no, he's terrific. And uh, I like Mishka and Grishka, the knife throwing uh, twins who are sort of the proto uh, Zemot and Tomax from GI Joe. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, it, but that's just another thing though, that kind of like knocks it up against the octopusy stuff is like, she has this um, cadre of circus specialists who can do cool circus stuff, but so does Khan. <laughs> you yeah. know, they both have yeah. like, a circus army. So, you know, again, it's like pick one or the other, you know, it's not as cool that she has one if he has one too. Yeah. And why is her circus armor fighting her circus army fighting against his army at the end? It, you know, that just more so that doesn't make sense. And, you know, and, the circus and I, and bond being in a gorilla suit and a clown outfit in the same movie uh, to escape from his captors, I think is a little much. I, I get the gag of taking Roger Moore down a peg as either a clown or in a gorilla suit, but I think doing it, it both in the same movie is kind of like putting a hat on a hat. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a good an- an- analogy. I I think the gorilla suit is ridiculous, especially how the hell does he get out of the suit? Yeah, 
Uh, it's like uh, Bill and Ted, right? I fell out of my armor when it hit the floor. <laughs> like, how does he get out without Gabinda seeing him? Um, the clown thing I like a little more, only because uh, it really kind of gives uh, his desperation. And we've already seen at the beginning, uh, 009 is dressed as a clown and, you know, gets chased by uh, Mishkin Grishkin, has that horrible death. Uh, and that desperation that he's gone through, and we're kind of reminded at the end scene, uh, that you know, 007 could you know have very well the same fate, and he looks more desperate, I think, than Roger Moore's Bond has ever looked as he's rushing yeah. around trying to get this bomb off. And kind of the absurdity of him being in this clown uh, outfit works for me. I think maybe Roger Moore is the only Bond who could have pulled that off. You know? Agreed. But then again, if he's rushing around, how much time did he spend putting on that clown makeup <laughs> while there's a ticking clock of a nuclear explosion? <laughs> a good point. Although. As opposed to the hockey playing assassins, yeah, there's a he, that's the only way he can get into the tent, right? Is to like put yeah. on makeup and get in there. You know, that's the only way he's going to get past security. Uh, hockey guys did not need to suit up at all. <laughs> um, but I like Bond being on top of it in this one. I like him taking the initiative to bid on the property of a lady. The egg mm-hmm. in the beginning is some great stuff to tail Kamal and uh, to buy the ticket to Delhi on on his own before M even tells him to do it. I like the bond is like really aggressive in this one. And he's like, he's, he's on the set right away. You know, he knows something's up and he knows the right places to go and he knows where to tell them to bring his equipment or to meet him and have VJ waiting for him. You know, I like that he's really uh, as a character is on top of it in this one. And yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another great, um, c- casino scene. Roger Moore can do that, uh, in his sleep. And it's always great to watch him. It's terrific. I'll tell you my least favorite scene in this movie. It's possibly my least favorite scene in any Bond movie. Uh, fuck Penelope Smallbone, man. Oh, yeah. Fuck her. This, this personality-free usurper. Get her out of here. I mean, if anyone wants to point, and we've already brought it up, uh, you know, to the old dude, young woman standards of these late Roger Moore movies, this is a scene that steers right into it. I mean... Do not fuck with Monty Penny, man. Do not fuck with Lois Maxwell, who effortlessly blows this actress off the screen. I mean, even while Bond is telling Smallbone, Monty Penny, you're getting prettier every day, you know? It's like, get the hell out of here, you know? You got Monty Penny right here. James Cavell's daughter, get the hell out of here. Uh, if the plan is to eventually have her replace Maxwell, Monty Penny, you know, don't introduce her in a scene where she just stands there not saying anything. I mean, she looks like she's scared of Bond when he's talking to her. Like, what was the intention of this scene? It's terrible. Yeah, and it's just going into it. Yeah, and it's just bad business casting another actress to be a rival for Money Penny on screen because, you know, James Bond like divides his flowers between the two. And that's just like not cool for either of those actresses to have to play that scene as Lois Maxwell knows she's like the producers are gearing to replace her like and and so that really just takes you out of the movie seeing that play out on screen yeah it's ugly man and lewis maxwell hated it of course you know she was reasonably indignant uh and when they rolled for the first time she apparently said um james this is my new assistant mrs smallbush yeah Um, just like I like if you have a genuine plan like we found this dynamite actress who's going to be the new secretary after Monty Penny we don't want to recast Monty Penny we're going to have a new secretary anyone introduce her within the world fine have her be a character at least you know have her be someone who's interesting not this dud 
and this scene that only exists to say, yeah, we know Lois Maxwell is this ugly old lady, so now we have a new young woman. Like, get the fuck out of here. I don't know. I, I hate that scene more than anything, I think. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if anything, uh, when Bernard Lee left, it should have made <laughs> Lewis Maxwell M. But uh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, but that uh, <laughs> but that would never happen, unfortunately. I guess in, in this era yeah. of Bond, yeah, yeah, that scene could have gone. No, it's just like I can't believe that it seems like very unbroccoli to do that in this yeah. film to be so insulting to the history of this character and this franchise and to this wonderful actress who we fans love so much, you know, for uh, being these films, you know, I can like breeze past the adolescent zooming in on the secretary's cleavage, you know, moment uh, like, uh, okay, whatever. But like that is <laughs> like this, you're just like stabbing yourself in the back. I don't even understand like the psychology that went into this scene. So yeah, so that's not my favorite moment. I will talk about one of my favorite <laughs> moments now. Sure. Uh, the the chase in the streets, which although it kind of incorporates some stereotypes of uh, Indian <laughs> culture, uh, it's a veritable cool parade <laughs> out of somebody's throat <laughs> and start fighting with people. It's fun. Yeah, it, it's another great. It's, it's a Roger Moore, you know, really playing to his comic strengths while being in dire peril. I, I do wish there was maybe one or two less blatant Indian stereotypes straight <laughs> out of like Johnny Quest or something. <laughs> totally. uh, but but it's yeah, it, it's a wonderfully uh, staged sequence with some great stunt work, and I love Bond in the in the tuk tuk with with VJ. Yeah, who's really charismatic in the role too. I, I like him a lot. He's terrific. It's genuinely sad when he dies. In this yeah, movie. yeah. You know, you don't feel as much for Luigi. You know. Um, but definitely VJ and Tippett are two of like the characters who you really like and really get to know. And uh, apparently though, you know, he's the actor is like actually a tennis pro, like a really mm-hmm. well-known tennis pro. And uh, he tells, talks about watching the movie with a bunch of other tennis players. And when his character dies, another one of the lesser tennis players jumped up and went, yes, I'm in, I'm in, <laughs> I'm in the next tournament. You're dead. Uh, so that's great. Uh, yeah. No, he was great. This was also the bomb movie we should mention that almost starred, James Brolin. <laughs> Jesus. In this way, Kevin McClory is actually something of a hero in the Bond films because obviously they decided they didn't want to go head to head with Never Say Never Again with a brand new Bond actor. They wanted to stick with, you know, the sure thing, the popular actor. Um, but the screen test that he did with, uh, with VJ and with um, Maude Adams he doesn't even try to do a British accent. Have you seen these uh, screen tests that he's done? Yeah, I have, but I can't imagine James Brolin doing a British accent. It would have been ridiculous. Yeah. It, you know, it, it would have been like Stallone doing a British accent. You've just been like, no, that's, that's <laughs> rid- get out of here. Uh, so I don't know what, a, what would have been worse, uh, James Brolin with his own accent or trying to do a British one. Uh, you're right. That's a good point. I mean... A terrible decision. I mean, apparently Brockley liked him so much. He almost was, he was like ready to buy a house in London to come over and do the film. That's how close it came, you know, uh, with the contracts with more, you know, the kind of negotiations up in the air. I just can't imagine what that film would have been like. Yeah. Uh, certainly couldn't see him in clown makeup, I can tell you that. <laughs> Uh, and the most dangerous game scene is a lot of fun uh, where they're hunting Bond in the jungle. Uh, oh, yeah. God. And again, he, he gets a tiger to sit. <laughs> That is one of the notoriously cheesy moments in the Bond series, yes. Um, that works for me. 
that works for me. I, it's it's a fun cheesy moment along the lines of you know uh, the gondola, you know, turning into a car in Moonraker or something like that. Where it's again, you know, it's like the Roger Moore era that I imagine Bond purists probably turn their nose up at. But I, I, it's fine. It works for me. <laughs> I, I do like the henchman with the yo-yo of death. Yeah, yeah. The it's uh, a really cool bladed weapon. The razor is almost like the um, uh, guillot- the flying guillotine. Flying, yeah. Uh, it's very yeah that guy is cool so it almost makes up for vj dying that you know he died in such a cool way i'd like to be killed by a guy with a yo-yo yeah. <laughs> razor blade i enjoy that um i like that it humanizes the bad guys a little bit uh when the car doesn't when they're about to leave the circus you know to get away from the bomb and the car doesn't start for a minute for yeah. kamala and gabinda that's funny and then when he tells gabinda when bond's hanging on the plane he says get out there and get him and he goes out there <laughs> you see like the, the 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 chink in his armor you know like he's he doesn't want to go out on a goddamn plane he's you know he's not superman that uh, is an amazing anyway. sequence too that that's such a great stunt i mean you know uh 30 years before tom cruise was hanging on off of planes it was the stunt team that was, that was doing it for real and you know it's not actually roger moore but it, it's a great sequence uh and and we get to see um, Gobinda get hit in the face with an antenna and fall to his death. <laughs> it's terrific. And the train sequence is also a great bit of stunt work. Uh, mm. um, where you can see Bond on top and you can see Gobinda running underneath to catch up with him. Like that's a great, like a really well thought out sequence of, of shots there. Um, excellent stunt work there. You know, a few dodgy close-ups, of course, with blue screen, but you know, what are you going to do? Um, I like that stuff a lot as well. Um, it maybe has that live and let die problem of all the bad guys being dark skinned a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, except for Orloff, of course. Um, but I think that kind of is the, in the same package as the stereotype street performers, you know, that you see in India. It's just, uh, you know, it's a cartoony kind of thing. What are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, there, there is this, you know, like the sort of reason detra of Bond is to send the viewer to an exotic location. And a lot of those exotic locations are populated by uh, non-white people. And especially when they're former uh, territories of the the British empire, there are all sorts of like post-colonial problems that you get into with what is a British agent doing there and what, and you know the the Western gaze that we view these cultures with, so you know are are we perpetuating exotic you know orient orientalisms um, by you know kind of parading these things uh, for the viewer, but at the same time the whole reason that people see James Bond movies is seeing places that they're never going to go themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you could definitely have done it in a more sensitive way, other than just like oh look at this crazy Indian food. It's a goat's head. Let's eat this eye. A very, you know, Which Temple of Doom kind of stuff. Eat a Temple of Doom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, if you didn't, so if you had handled that stuff in a more kind of culturally sensitive way, it wouldn't have stung so bad having a, a cadre of non white villains. Um, but, you know, unfor- unfortunately, the filmmakers weren't as cognizant of those things at the time. She mentioned this film also preceded Mutt swinging through the jungle like Tarzan in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull with Oof. Roger Moore doing the same thing. There were some unfortunate choices like that. Yeah. Um, what do we think of VJ playing the James Bond theme as a signed Bond? 
it's yeah again it's a too just a, a tinge too much because bond recognizes it like yeah. if, it, if it was just like a cute in joke of that's the tune he's playing like okay fine but the fact that james bond like oh that means he's talking to me uh, uh that that makes no sense because uh, I, I really like the like close encounters gag in moonraker because i can understand in that in bond's universe close encounters is a movie that exists but is there an action franchise with the james bond theme and james bond universe <laughs> i don't want i don't want to be thinking about that kind of stuff when i'm watching this movie it's wink winking a little too clearly at the audience yeah yeah, yeah. um i'd also say but but again for all these um Lesser things, there's a lot of great stuff. And uh, that was for 009 is a badass line reading, obviously, like uh, kicking the, the car off in uh, the last film. Uh, Moore's got some cool moments like that. Uh, although he gets punked by some uh, bunch of East German teens at one point when he's trying yeah. to get ride to the circus. Uh, and he's foiled by a woman in a phone booth who won't get... Like, the world is threatened by nuclear annihilation and he just... He, defeated by polite. a woman. Yeah. <laughs> no. Wait your turn. <laughs> Um, and I'm not sure this is Fami with uh, Dammy with faint praise, but it's uh, again this is a really well edited film. Uh, it's the first one directed by uh, edited, sorry, by Peter Davies, who went on to cut uh, View to a Kill and Living Daylights. Uh, and just the flow works really well, especially when it, you know the plot has giant holes in it. And, you know you don't really know how Bond exactly gets from bidding on Fabergé eggs to uh, you know a circus uh, in East Berlin, uh, but it just takes you there. You know, I feel like this film just has a great flow. And again, John Glenn's background, I think cutting film really has a lot to say to that. I do have to say that um, there's mixed uh, reports about John Glenn's handling of actors. There are some actors who he really had a good relationship with, but there are some actors who just said that he just gave absolutely nothing to, to them as far as their, their performances go. And he, he's got a record of saying that, that you, you don't go to bond films for the acting. Yeah. Um, I mean, in a sense, that's true. Win Oscars, yeah, yeah. But I mean, when when you have, you know, when you have Robert Shaw or Christopher Walken as your villains, like it adds such a, an extra element to the film that makes it so much more worthwhile. And you know, Roger Moore, he didn't need direction. He he had his his gear, and he was you know, a plus a thousand percent at it, but people who are newcomers, they probably needed some more, some more guidance into their performance and how they fit in, into that world. Because, you know, it is a well-oiled machine and for a newcomer, it might be intimidating to be the new cog in that. So maybe it would have been nice if, you know, instead of a, maybe sometimes in action franchises, there could be a director of performance to, get, to, to come in and, and, and help with actors. Maybe that's not a bad idea, but it is a really well oiled machine, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, and, and there are little moments like, again, the desperation of, you know, 009, the leader of bond being chased and being the one who's, you know, uh, being hunted, literally hunted by the villain, you know, that, yeah. Uh, are, are good moments for them, you know, that just kind of takes Bond a little bit out of his, it's not, it's not just being captured and then tethered to a, a table with a giant laser. This is literally, he's running for his life in these films, you know, yeah. and, uh, and you, 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 that's something you appreciate too. So, uh, so my, my, my estimation ultimately of Octopussy is fine. Just fine. <laughs> I must've seen that movie twice. <laughs> You know, no, it's uh, no, it's it's good. It's good. I it's just the kind of thing I wish I could live in an alternate reality where 
James Brolin started. No, where, where it uh, <laughs> had made different decisions in terms of the story and maybe a little yeah. bit of casting. Um, but it's a good one. Mm-hmm. It's a good one. Uh, and that leads us to the one where Bond defeats a killer with urine. <laughs> uh, the rival Bond film from the War- from Warner Brothers, which came out later that year, 1983. It's called Never Say Never Again. And right up to this moment, John, I'm going to be honest with you. I did not know what I was going to say about this movie. <laughs> it's such a weird thing that exists. It's something that I kind of am glad exists in a weird way. It seems like we get like a, a Bond film from a different dimension, from an alternate reality where Connery never quit. And yeah. he was always Bond. And it was him playing Bond well up into, you know, his mid, his late 50s or early 60s. It's uh, it's a curio that I that I kind of appreciate in a weird way. Uh, I, I should just a little background on this. I should mention that you know, and some of the stuff I learned kind of recently too. Uh, this was, of course, Kevin McClory had tried to get a rival Bond film off the ground because he owned the rights to the story of Thunderball, which uh, you know Fleming had kind of appropriated from uh, a script that they had written together. So he had the rights after ten years to make do a remake of Thunderball. And sort of the funny thing is that he had a brilliant idea, which was to get Sean Connery to hire Sean Connery as a writer of this movie um, and tell and flattering him by telling him, you know, Bond better than anybody. Like you should be the one telling me what this film should be. And what Sean Connery came up was this ludicrous thing about terrorists attacking New York through the sewers mm-hmm. and mechanical sharks taking over the statue of liberty like it was ridiculous and but apparently he was happy and kevin mcclory were happy and they brought it to the, the lawyers and the lawyers said um this is not thunderball you have to make thunderball you cannot make an original shitty bond movie you need to do the same story that's all you can do so it was almost like a script written by lawyers because they had to they had to examine every scene and make sure it was just close enough to thunderball to be legally what they were supposed to be doing, but far enough away from it that it could be its own thing. Uh, and the lawyer in charge of this, the one who produced it is uh, Jason Schwartzman's dad. I didn't realize, you know, uh, who really clashed with uh, production when they got into it, clashed with uh, Irving Kirshner, uh, but apparently got his brother-in-law, Francis Coppola, to do a rewrite of the script at one point, which I was surprised to learn. Uh, and so what you get from all this, these years of trying to put this together, purely as opportunism i think we can you know safely say is this very very weird not exactly bond movie that exists with a character named james bond being played by sean connery um they had i had kind of forgotten when i watched it this time that they deal with his age straight up right yeah they kind of introduce this element of the double o's being outdated and bond is playing some kind of a weird war game scenario which precedes the opening of living daylights i guess um, instead of going on actual missions, even M basically calls him washed up to his face and has to, he's got to prove that he's still got it. Uh, even if he does so by basically reliving a previous adventure from his salad days. Uh, so sort of immediately what's in the foreground of my mind is talking about Robin and Marion recently and th- saying, I love the story of can a myth die? Like can, you know, some, a legendary hero get old and, uh, and fade away. Robin and Marion being a perfect example of that. Uh, and this being less so, <laughs> uh, not being a movie where Connery really plays his older age 
to uh, to the benefit of the film. Um, but now I'm, I'm dying to know, John, what are your thoughts on, on Never Say Never Again? Oh, wildly mixed. There is a lot of stuff that I love about the movie. I do really like them just being upfront with uh, Bond's age in the movie. Because even, you know, in Diamonds Are Forever, you could just tell that Connery was just not into it at that point, you know, as much as I enjoy watching that movie. But so to see, you know, uh, 12 years later to see him back and to see uh, both the character and the actor grappling with, uh, you know, middle age, I think is really compelling, especially in a world that's passed him by and is now so um, against the indulgences that he enjoyed in his youth in the, in the sixties, like the smoking and the drinking and and the, the, the the fatty food. He's, the world is trying to purge that from a system and, and make him a more modern man. And he's very stubborn in that. And so that conflict is, I think, interesting to see on screen and, and to play. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, Max von Sydow is, to be fair. Yeah. He's into it this time. Like he's definitely more invested. I'd say. Yeah. Definitely. That he wasn't diamonds and definitely more so than you only live twice. Yeah. And I, I love, um, I just love the idea of Max von Sydow has Blofeld. Like that's, absolutely perfect he doesn't get enough to do in the movie but the fact that he's in it is great and the fact that he that there's this possibility of him doing it in the, in the future you know that was never realized obviously but but that's that's a, a great presence and uh klaus marie brandauer is great as this utter creep of a villain he's a much better largo than we got in, in thunderball mm-hmm. uh, i i love the goofiness of the video games um and I, I think it thematically fits because it's the new version of the games that James Bond has been playing his whole career. Now he's faced with a new challenge. Obviously it's a little ridiculous to sort of like pain via electricity thing that uh, Bond, that Bond plays in the, in the casino. Um, but then it's I also that sequence. I love, yeah. I love what exactly what you're saying. Seeing Bond kind of be like, what the hell is this thing? And then learning it and then taking the challenge and conquering yeah. it the way Bond does. Like, oh, this is a game like like Baccarat. You know, like I can I can be the victor of this is a great kind of progression from the beginning and end of that scene. And and I, I mean, Kim Basinger is, is a great actress, but she's given very little to do other than wear not enough clothing. Um, and apparently she was just very unhappy on this film. And that's understandable and and unfortunate oh i never heard yeah and um possibly definitely my least favorite scene in bond in the bonds of this era occurs in this movie where she's like about to be auctioned off to some like drooling berbers (laughs) like like (laughs) like this is some like birth of a nation level bullshit where like these like subhuman people of color are like groveling and grappling at this like beautiful white woman tied to a stick. It just, it's not cool. Uh, anything grosser than having to kiss a non-white guy. Ew. Yeah. And, and just like, Oh, so this is what the people in North Africa do. They auction off white women. Like, um, so it's, yeah. Despite what we talked about 
with Penelope Smallbone and all that kind of stuff. Like this is not a scene you would see in a Cubby Broccoli production. And so I think that's a testament to the kind of class that he brought to uh, the James Bond franchise. You know what that scene reminds me of too with Bond uh, chained up like in that weird cell? It reminds me of Three Amigos when Martin is trying to get out of those chains for so long. Uh, It's a bizarre, weird choice. Yeah, that set looks like it's from a Monty Python sketch. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's that's being generous. I'd say it looks like uh, you can't do you can't do that on television. You know, (laughs) because he's it's in a medieval dungeon with like a bunch of random bones on the floor. Like what? What movie is this that we're watching? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I mean, yeah, Irvin Kershner is such, I think, an interesting director because you know he, he he directed the best Star Wars film, um, one of the best movies ever made. But then the rest of his career is very spotty. Like I like oh, the Eyes of Lord. Yeah, I, I like the the Eyes of Lord Mars a lot, um, but it's not a great movie. Um, I think Robocop Two is a serviceable film but it's certainly not the first one and and i mean this is another inenviable task of competing with eon productions james bond but it's you know pretty inconsistent and has some real glaring flaws uh as much as i enjoy it for what it is um i think it you know it could have been so much better yeah uh of course i love max von Sydow as well interesting though to put blofeld in a bow tie and gray suit like, do they want me to think about Pee Wee Herman while I'm watching yeah. his scenes? Um, but he's all right. Uh, uh, Blandauer, uh, I used used to be one of my favorite Bond villains. Honestly, I used to think like he gives a really he's really underrated. Uh, and then I read something on uh, this uh, Bond blog called um, "You Only Blog Twice" by Bryant uh, Burnett, where he said uh, he he put up a really good uh, criticism of the of the character and said. Uh, Bond, Bond's supposed to be fighting Dracula, not Renfield. And I just thought, whoa, that really, that's interesting. That's interesting to think about. Um, because, you know, as much as his performance is more interesting, for sure, than the previous Largo that we got, I think it's a good point that, you know, he probably wouldn't be put in, in charge of a as huge an operation like this if he was so unstable 24-7 and as goofy as he is. Um, so that character suffers a little bit from that, I think. Uh, but for me, the MVP of the movie uh, is definitely Fatima Blush, right? I mean, she is... Yeah. Is she better than Fiona Volpe? Like, no. But fortunately, we live in a world where we have both Fiona Volpe and Fatima Blush, you know? Um, she's a snake-slinging, water-ski-spying, shark-summoning uh, she-devil. And supposedly, she based her performance on Kali, the... Indian yeah. male god, which is like, whoa, that is cool. And she's just so dynamic to watch. Uh, I definitely put her on my Mount Rushmore Bond femme fatales next to Fiona, Mayday, and Xenia on the top. You know? Yeah, she's yeah, she's a wonderful uh, psychopath. Uh, and I, I just love, she's so unstable in every scene she's in, but she's still keeping it together. And she's still like alluring enough that you can understand why Bond would like still be willing to pal around with her and not just like kill her. I mean, you know, she's just, she's, cause she's, she's so cool. obsessed. Yeah. 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 So it's, she, fun. yeah. She's so much fun to watch and you can understand why she's so much fun to, to be around. Yeah. Um, and her, her outfits are fantastic. You know, 
totally insane. Uh, so she's, yeah, she's, a I woman. had my wife pass in the room while I was watching it stopped in her last scene with that blouse and the black pants. She's out on. She's like, yeah. Whoa, that's an outfit. Yeah. 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 It's terrific. Barbara Carrera apparently turned down Octopussy to play Fatima number 12, wow. which is like good, good choice. I mm-hmm. think, you know, maybe not the better movie, but definitely the better part, whatever you got, you know, whatever she was uh, yeah. offering that. Um, so that's a plus. She's a plus movie suffers a little bit when she's gone. Uh, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm taking it out on Blander a little bit with that, you know, I'd rather see her being crazy than him being crazy. Uh, but while we're on characters, let me just say Nigel small faucet and Penelope small bone should get married and then get <laughs> murdered by Irma bunt on their way to the honeymoon. <sighs> Two pointless stupid yeah. characters forcibly inserted into their respective films for terrible reasons as much as I love Blackadder, you know, we do not mm. need Mr. Bean in a Bond movie, even if it's a, you know, we don't, we don't need him under the best circumstances for a Bond movie, let alone the worst, you know. Because he literally does nothing. He, he no. mugs for the camera and does some stupid, like, oh, go Bond tells him to go hide behind a pillar and he does, like, you know, another cartoonish kind of going from hiding place to hiding place stuff. So that is not fun. But this movie does use the Bond characters for sure. Yeah, mug but, it uh, up, mug it up, Rowan. This is great. Oh, keep rolling. Just, just riff. This is so good. But I, I love Bernie Casey as Felix. Um, I think, except for Jeffrey Wright, he's my favorite Felix. Uh, and him and Bond have a great rapport. I love that scene where they um, they basically take their clothes off and trip to the underwear. The little Max scene. That they're, yeah, that they're training. Yeah, <laughs> that's Mike the, Tyson's punch out all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. That's great. I love him. I I I, t- I take it out on Nigel Small Fawcett that we don't get more of him as Felix in the movie. You know, yeah, that he's taking over stuff that Felix should be doing. You know, and not acting like a complete dipshit on screen. Uh, but yeah, Casey's terrific, and uh, I wish there was more of him in it. Um, I, I like um, Alec McCowan as Algernon. Uh, they totally go the opposite of of Q and uh as you know De- Desmond Llewellyn's Q and have somebody who's very much Bond's ally and who's sort of under the same pressures that that Bond is and so they have an, a real nice rapport and so it changes the dynamic up a lot but it's one that's a lot of fun to watch even still. Yeah. No, yeah, he's really good and I think it was a good instinct too to kind of go in the opposite direction of the Eon movies. Like sure the Flying Saucer is not nearly as cool as the Disco Volante but you know, it, it's good that they tried to be their own thing. And that's something you could save for the movie. And the domination scene, uh, other than being, you know, uh, cool for the, re- the the character reasons that we talked about, I think uh, it's just a, technically a very cool scene. I mean, it's cool effects and their faces framed in the center of that digital world map is so cool, you know. Um, and especially since they've set it up that they only have like Centipede, Gravatar, and Dig Dug. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's it until you come to this, you know, table that's its own game. Uh, kind of predicted Dave and Buster's in a weird way, the classy casino that has uh, arcade games. All of a sudden, you could walk from the classy bar to the arcade games in the hidden room. What if Dave and Buster's had a, a black tie dress code? That would be something. I always go to Dave and Buster's yeah, yeah. in the black tie. Oh, okay. you know. you're, you're a better man than I. <laughs> Why is the motorcycle encased in styrofoam? It's a big question. <laughs> this time, you like, what's the styrofoam and out comes the motorcycle? Is it just like, is it important to know that it's brand new? Is there any gas in it? <laughs> it makes it seem like it's fragile. Or, or like it has to be protected during shipping or something. Right. A strange way to show that uh, motorcycle. I mean, I guess 
it would have been shipped to him wherever he was uh, logically, but I don't know. Was, no, you you can drive a motorcycle to places. <laughs> Bond's definitely going to need a motorcycle. Put it in a big crate. Yeah, <laughs> and ship it over to him. Uh, also, no explanation as to how they got a nuclear missile into the White House. They really just fly right over that. <laughs> yeah, it's and it's definitely the most cartoonish example of a Bond villain telling James Bond his plan. Bond showed up, where's the, the nukes? Ah, in Washington, D.C. Where's the other one? Ah, that would be telling. But you just told him half the plan. Yeah, and then later when they say, hey, we got that missile out of the White House, I was like, I thought he was joking. There really yeah. was a missile in the White House? How did they get that in there? And then dress it up as a tourist and just walked in. <laughs> like, that is uh, ambitious. That's very ambitious. Turns out they got playing with the eye and everything was yeah. not even half of the plan. <laughs> they, they actually kidnapped the president and got him in there somehow. Maybe. I don't know. The president is in on it. I had no idea. Very strange stuff like that. So, yeah. I... <laughs> also, the worst Bond song. Uh, worst Bond music in general this whole yeah, thing yeah. Uh, Michael Legrand did the music which is kind of funny because his score for Robin and Marion was rejected by Richard Lester um, and he had once said like this is like me getting revenge on Dick Lester getting to do this Connery film and it's like how is that revenge that you were hired to do another movie he wasn't involved with at all uh, yeah the song is terrible that it plays over the opening scene makes it even worse um and the music in general sounds like elevator music, I think, more than anything. Yeah. Like, obviously, you can't hire John Barry. That's too obvious. But hire somebody who can come close to a Bond score. <laughs> you know, I am with you 100% on that. Yeah, and the, the 007 graphic where the whole screen is just like 007 repeating, it's such uh, an attempt to come up with something as iconic as the Gunbrell sequence, but it just falls so flat. Yeah, you, they would have just been better off just abandoning that idea. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's sort of the thing where they should have gone more original. They should have strayed from the Eon formula and not tried to do their own version of the the, the bullet shot, uh, the barrel shot. Um, I am agree. I'm agree with you with this. I'd say in this movie, I got a real sentimental attachment to it because it's just been with me for so long. And yeah, I when I was when you're a kid, you don't know all the politics. You think this is one of the regular Bond movies, right? It's just one that your parents happen to have taped along with all the rest of them. Um, but uh, when you learn about it, it kind of makes more sense because there's definitely something often strange about this film that definitely separates it from the other ones. I guess I, you could say I like it the way I like a Batman 66, the Batman 66 movie, you know, mm. it's got that cheesy element and it was written by the same guy, Lorenzo Semple. They hired uh, the guy who wrote all of those episodes, wrote this movie. Um, at one point they say the difference between a double O and a corpse, you know, and I think that's what this movie is going for. Like, you know, figuring out like how to get bond back in, up on the saddle and, uh, and not being dead. So I kind of appreciate that a little bit, but again, not the greatest Sean Connery utilizing his, you know, sagacious, wizened, aged, uh, character, the way he did in Highlander, obviously in last crusade, red October. Um, but still a movie I'm glad is out there. It, yeah, I feel like at the very end of the day, it's it, it's not a, it's 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 not a mark against the Bond franchise that Warner Brothers made this film. Yeah, I mean it's 
never bad to watch Sean Connery play James Bond. Like it's, he's, I mean, he's such a goddamn movie star that he just, you know, lights up the screen no matter matter what he's doing. Even if he's incredibly bored, like he was in You Only Live Twice. Um, But, but for, for here, for this one, I think he's more into the humor. Um, He's really engaged uh, physically and you can see him embody the character in a way that he hasn't done in years. And so that, that, that's just a treat. I agree with you. And it's uh, funny too, that at one point Largo looks out upon the scope and says, what a wonderful view. You almost expect Christopher Walken to sidle up beside him and say, to a kill. To a kill. Time for Christopher Walken. (laughs) Yes. Yes. John, I'm going to let you tell us what you think about a view to a kill from 1985 starring a Nazi experimental baby as a villain. Um, so, at the beginning of this episode, we started with a movie that was dedicated to bringing James Bond down to earth. And we're ending with this one, which <laughs> is the most ridiculous of the Roger Moore uh, Bond entries. And I love it. Um, it has one of the best Bond villains. It has, in my opinion, the best henchman. I think Mayday is probably the most effective henchman and she's iconic, intimidating, original, and has this incredible like ferocity and energy that I don't think any of the other henchmen have. Um, and I love San Francisco as a location because I think, you know, we've traveled to the ends of the earth and it's really interesting to see Bond both out of his element, but in a place that most audiences are all already familiar with. Um, even though you know there's been there's obviously so many iconic movies shot in San Francisco, it was really cool to see James Bond there. Uh, I love Patrick McNee. Um, all the horse racing stuff has nothing to do with the plot, but it's so much fun to, to see. Uh, the the Shanti locations are absolutely breathtaking. So there's so many elements in this movie that seem like it shouldn't work that should make it be absolute nonsense but i like it's it's probably my favorite bond song too i I love duran duran's view to a kill um and you know as for somebody who spent so much time listening to norwegian black metal for me you'd be like i love this duran duran song so much um it it, everything works for me for some reason I'm so relieved to hear you say that, sir, because I always feel like of all the Bond films, the uh, little wimpy one that I have to defend from Bullies is A View to a Kill. It was the first one I ever saw. So it's always going to be, you know, a sentimental favorite, but it's a film that holds up. I really enjoy it. Uh, I think it's great. Um, While obviously the biggest criticism launched against this is that Roger Moore is too old uh, that he should have been replaced at this point. I think that this movie, and in a subtle way, not like uh, Never Say Never Again, is conscious of his age in certain ways, like that loud oof sound effect that he has more than once, you know, when he's mm-hmm. getting beat up. They never would have put that on Connery, no matter what, yeah. it, you know. That's definitely, that plays into the Roger Moore sort of like, oh, this action stuff I have to do is such a pain in the butt, you know. Um, but in a way, that really, I think, is why Moore is great. I think, you know, he's great because he steps up when he's needed. You know, he's willing to do the action, even though he'd probably rather just be tooling around with his ballet, you know, <laughs> like he'd probably yeah. rather live the life that he is fake living when he's undercover at Zorin's uh, horse auction. 
then he does, then, you know, having to do the daredevil stuff. But the point is when that, uh, that tethering line is in front of him, you know, from the Zeppelin, he's going to grab it. You yeah. know, he's going to grab it and he's going to save Stacy and he's going to put an end to Zorin. Uh, when it comes up, he will jump to the, he will jump to the task and he will succeed in that task. Uh, the fight, the fist fights in this film are regrettable. You know, Outlaw Vern in his review said it's like watching a bar fight in an old Western movie, uh, which is true. You know, it's uh, and there are two extended physical fights in this with stocky dudes uh, that don't need to be in it. You know, like they, they could have taken those scenes out. It doesn't really propel the plot forward in any particular way. Um, but the, that would be those would be the worst cases, you know, in, in this film. I think there is so much grandeur. Uh, for Bond to, you know, chase after Mayday after she's um, skydived off of the Eiffel Tower uh, to drive a car that's first, you know, the top is clipped off and then it becomes half a car and then jump onto a boat to try to catch her. This is the Bond I want to see, you know? And yep. again, this is the thing where it's like, yeah, he looks a little tired. He looks like he, it's something he'd prefer not to be doing, but he's going to do it because that's James Bond. And I think... I really actually appreciate Roger Moore's age in this movie um, because he's put up against somebody like Zorin. This is an interesting uh, villain for, you know, the eighties because this is like, you know, prime greed is good sort of, you know, uh, eighties materialism. And it's almost like we're trying to grapple with the greed of the era in that the only way we can fathom the insatiable, um, lust for material possession is that if these people in charge of corporate America were actually Nazi experiments gone wrong. Mm. Uh, and so to put Bond against that, there's just this inherent decency in the way Roger Moore plays James Bond, especially in this film, as he's so, he's so disgusted with the psychopathy of Zorin and his greed and his plans and just the way he, he sort of relishes cruelty that um Roger Moore's age I think adds actual gravitas to that decency and I really enjoy seeing him play that yeah he's great with walking that scene where uh after they've killed Tibbet where Zorin is still goofing around and making jokes and Bond is like no no we're done like that cover is yeah. done that moment is done this is not a game you're a piece of shit is basically what he says to yeah. him like you know you're a crazy megamaniacal maniac let's not there's no goofiness here this is not a game i'm here to stop you um yeah. those scenes are dead are great they're so so tense um so we get scenes like that and we get a scene where bond cooks and they both work you know uh i bring that up because um i just watched this week Ernest goes to camp with my kids <laughs> one of uh jim barney's i don't know if it's one of his regular catchphrases but he says it twice in this movie is when he's trying to be tough he's trying to tough up he says I'm a man who's never tasted quiche, which I guess I never realized is like code for like a weak person, a weak guy yeah. would eat quiche, you know? It was and like this, avocado toast for the 80s. Yeah. And in this bun makes quiche. Yeah. <laughs> he cooks up some quiche for him and Stacy to eat. And it's like, hey, he doesn't give a shit. You know, he, he's James Bond. He is still yeah. going to be tough, even though he likes quiche. And I... I enjoy that aspect of Bond's character. Like he's somebody who knows everything about the finest French wine and, you know, and the best champagne and, and the, the best brand of caviar, but he's also like a man's man. And he, he is not afraid to indulge in the finer things in life. And I, I think that Roger Moore you know, plays that to a hilt. Yeah. 
without a doubt. Uh, he loves hot tubs, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he loved to just hang out in a hot tub all day. Tchaikovsky! <laughs> uh, that's great. And then... And anyway, that defines Roger Moore 007 for me more than anything. You know, he'll try to talk his way out of things. And if that doesn't work, you know, he'll shoot a cop with a fire hose and ride off in the fire truck, you know. And I I really enjoy the uh, rock salt shotgun sequence. I think that's a really well choreographed action scene because it doesn't require Roger Moore to go fisticuffs with anybody. He's just going to town with a shotgun on on goons. And I think it's really well done. And shot the Dunsmore house, uh, famous, of course, for being in Phantasm and Burnt Offering. So that's a nice little cinematic uh, uh, reference in there by itself. Love to see Roger Moore go up against the tall man. Uh, And you, you mentioned it, his chemistry with Patrick McNee is just great. I think maybe better than any chemistry he had with any of the female leads yeah. in these films. Like they're just so clearly chummy with each other, even when they're getting on each other's nerves. They're like an old married couple in this movie. Yeah. You know? It's a pleasure to watch. Yeah. And um, I, I did not realize this until recently, but uh, Pat, um, one of the, the casting people asked Patrick McNee if he's good with horses. And Patrick McNee is actually the son of an incredibly famous horse trainer in England who was training horses up until World War II. And Patrick McNee uh, was a horse riding extra on Wagon Train and Rawhide. Uh, so, yes, he is familiar with horses. And so he's perfectly cast as Roger Moore's buddy who trains horses. <laughs> I uh, I hadn't heard about the Gunsmoke stuff, but I knew about his dad. Wasn't his nickname like Skip McNeil or uh, Shrimp? Shrimp, Shrimp, yeah. <laughs> that is terrific. Yeah, their scenes together are terrific. Um, and you really, it's it's a real bummer when uh, when he exits the movie. Yeah. Um, but Christopher Walken obviously is great, and I, you know, it's funny. I say obviously he's great because he's Christopher Walken, but he's not. He's not really Christopher Walken great in this movie. He's this movie came out the same year as the dead zone. Right. Mm-hmm. And if I were a kid and I saw the dead zone and if you do a kill right next to each other, I probably wouldn't have re- realized it was the same actor. Cause these are like real performances he's giving in these movies. Like yeah. they don't feel like what he would eventually sort of walking parody of himself that he kind of become, you know, not that that's a bad thing, you know, obviously Christopher Walken is great, but these are like not typical walking performances. And that final laugh that he gives on the golden gate, uh, it's it becomes a Batman movie. He's like the Joker, you know, yeah. like in that scene, like or when he's shooting the uh, machine guns. And Christopher Walken even said, uh, those weren't scripted. Those those moments where Zoran laughs, he did it because he found it so amusing. Like, oh, I'm dangling from the Golden Gate Bridge. This is a, this is a hoot, you know. Or I'm mowing down all these people with a machine gun. Me, this actor from you know, it's it's fun. Uh, it, which is great, you know. That he brought that to these to this character who is definitely one of the more memorable villains of the series yeah. and even just a couple years after deer hunter you know when him and bond are first having that tete-a-tete at uh, at the, the the staples um you know he's bond asks him do you ride and he says i'm happiest in the saddle like just his <laughs> it's such an off-putting creepy way of speaking that you you know you expect that from Christopher Walken now, but in the context of the mid eighties, it's just like, Oh, this person is off (laughs) and you don't quite grasp how off he really is, but it's clear like, Oh, we're going to get into some serious shit with, with with this guy. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm sure for people who weren't ready for the Christopher Walken era of movies, this was incredibly weird to to experience at the time, you know, but it's great. Um, 
It is great. I uh, love that Robert Brown, uh, who replaced Bernard Lee as M, here decides basically he's going to play him like an angry chief, you know, in a cop movie. Yeah. It's sort of going to be his take on the character. You know, he's always going to be giving Bond a hard time, which works perfectly when we get into the Dalton era for reasons that are obvious when we get into those. Um, but even in this movie, as early as this film, you know, he's giving Bond such a hard time the way that, you know, I'm going to bust your ass, you know, give me your badge and busting your ass to the street. You know, I, I enjoy that uh, characterization of him. Um, one thing I noticed, this is, I never thought of it before until I watched it this time. So Zorn executes the official, the division of oil and mines at the San Francisco city hall. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, after fabricating a tale where Stacy killed him for firing her. I realized watching it this time, wasn't this uncomfortable for anyone considering the real-life murder of San Francisco Mayor uh, George Capone and Harvey Milk at San Francisco City Hall under similar circumstances to this invented scenario less than a decade earlier? Like, yikes. But uh, Dianne Feinstein was very accommodating to to the production. Uh, So... And she was friends with them, right? She was like... yeah, Yeah, so she was then mayor of San Francisco inviting this movie production to burn down city hall very soon after the assassination of Harvey Milk. And so it's, it is a little with, with the villain specifically saying she shot him because he fired her. Like, Oh my God, this is, uh, this is a little, this is a little too much like Dan White from my taste. Uh, So of course it's nothing I noticed earlier in my viewings, but this time was like, Whoa, I'm surprised that they, that passed uncommented upon, (laughs) you know? And this is something that I, you know, just fiddling around on IMDb. Uh, Michael Brinzani, the guy who plays Howe, um, the chief of mines in, in Chief of California Mines, oh, yes. um, he he was 34 when they made this movie. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. He was he younger so than me. He was younger than me. If you told me he was 54, I would have believed you. Wow. Uh, yeah. Just so, like, uh, uh, oof. Um, so I think it speaks to how well Roger Moore um, holds up because he was like 58 at, at this point. So, right. so good for you, Roger. You still look younger than this fucking guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but the, speaking of bur- burning down City Hall, that that uh, fire sequence, especially in, in the elevator shaft, I think is, is uh, extraordinarily well done. It's so full of tension. Um, and, you know, we, we've, we've seen so many, like, burning down the building sequences in, in film, but I think this one is just so expertly done and and also goes to show the, the decency of James Bond as to how much he puts himself at risk to save Stacy and and you know, how yes. and yeah and how well he he equips himself and just how together he is when once he, you know, reaches the the asphalt and, and then steals a fire truck. When they play the theme as he's coming down the ladder with her it makes it like the centerpiece of the film, you know, like this moment, which is just one character walking down a ladder is as big a moment, you know, as the biggest bond set pieces, because again, it's, it's bond stepping up when he has to, he's going to save this terrified woman uh, from being trapped in an elevator and being burned to death and bring her down. And, you know, there's nothing, there's no gadgets involved. It's just him stepping up and being a hero. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, is a great moment. I agree. And I, it, it's clear that if that Bond would let himself be burned alive rather than leave her there. And I think that that's what Roger Moore brings to the role. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I like the relationship they have throughout most of this movie, which is almost paternal, you know, mm-hmm. like he, the way he falls asleep with the shotgun across his lap rather yeah. than going to bed with her. It, you know, of course they have to screw it up at the end by them getting together in the very last second. But then I guess that's just what bond movies have to be. But up yeah. until that point, I like that she's almost like this this kid to him more than anything. When she's yeah. there, you're thinking of the mind, she says, do you realize what I'm sitting on? He says, I'm trying not to think about yeah. it. You know? <laughs> I like that. That's a good dynamic yeah. between them. I know that Tanya Roberts gets a lot of shit for not being one of the best Bond women, but I think she's fine. you know. And I think that their relationship, until that last scene, is yeah. actually not something that you could point a finger at and say, oh, another 57-year-old with this you know, late 20s, early 30s woman. Um, so that, that, that's something I don't have a problem with in this film. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's not a a well-written part, honestly. I I like, I do like the character. Um, but for, I have read a couple pretty disparaging comments from Richard Maybaum about Tony Robbins' performance. And it's like, well, you didn't do her any favors there, buddy, uh, (laughs) with with this role. So I, I I always kind of, I'm not very... I'm not one to throw shade at Bond girl performances because they're oftentimes very underwritten and don't do the actresses who play them any favors. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure his comments about Tanya Roberts are nowhere near as bad as Jim Wynorski's who just has nothing but spite for her for some reason. Hmm. Um, Dolph Lundgren's in this movie. Yeah. That's something to point out. Yeah. A a perfect KGB goon. Yeah. uh, If there ever was one. And And Ari didn't love Dolph Lundgren. He was freaking dating Grace Jones at this point. Yeah. Like, man, yeah. what a, what a guy. <laughs> I wish they could have had one kid. Come on, give the give the world. That, that would have been a beautiful kid, please. For sure. please. Yeah. Um, and I, I like I like Walter Gothel and and Christopher Walken. Their their kind of you know fire and ice dynamic is is really really great and you can see that uh the kgb recognizes that they've created a monster in in zoran and that he's totally out of control and and i think the fact that you know you see that the kgb is is afraid of this guy it it gets across that how dangerous he really is yeah yeah for sure um but let's talk more about mayday because i love that you call her your favorite henchman um such a uh exciting choice for the bond series which really you know for all their cool casting choices really didn't go to left field on the most point but casting grace jones as this this, uh killer was uh seems it seems like someone cool was working in that office you know who said yeah yeah. uh, we should get her involved um because she's someone who beyond you know besides being you know this unbelievably gorgeous person uh it's just got such got such an ex, uh, exotic sort of, you know, persona in general that you don't really know what to think of her when she's, you know, dry lifting these guys over her head and killing dudes with butterflies and jumping off the Eiffel Tower. I mean, it seems like, you know, this is the only the kind, this is the kind of person, it, it gives a sort of a reality to this character who is a beyond reality, you know? Yeah. And uh, speaking of great outfits, holy hell. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. first time we see her, her hat has a cape. It's amazing. And she has a different hairstyle in every scene. Uh, she's incredibly terrifying and incredibly gorgeous at the same time. And I, I think she just brings a presence to the screen that no other henchman has, has ever brought. And, yeah. and she has this like insane sexual chemistry with Christopher Walken. 
as well. And so to, to see that relationship between uh, a villain and a, a quote unquote henchman is something that makes this film like no other. Absolutely. I love her. And I, and it's works also sort of as a contrast to everyone saying, Oh, bond, you know, jumps in bed and then the woman's going to jump in with him just automatically. But in this scene, it's like Mayday is, if bond wants to have sex with Mayday, it's going to be under her terms, you know, he's going to push him around and knock him around and he's going to have a rough night. You know, she really takes command of that scene. And uh, of course, supposedly Grace Jones brought a, uh, a dildo onto set for that scene to freak out Roger more, even more, which I think worked because he looks absolutely terrified when he's in bed with her. Yeah. And this is one of the only times that James Bond beds a villainous who then doesn't immediately turn. Cause usually when Bond has, has sex with a woman, that's a sign that he, he has now conquered her and, and she's on the side of good from now on, but Mayday doesn't, turn until she's betrayed by Zorin. Right. And so then literally cast her off. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's more spite than anything that she just wants to ruin his plans and kill him. Yeah. And I've seen it, I've seen it uh, said that uh, it weakens her character at the end when she's suddenly like more like this helpless person who's been, you know, uh, brushed aside. I disagree. I think, you know, I think I, it's, it's cool to see that she's genuinely hurt, that she genuinely loved Zorin, you know, and mm-hmm. thought that, you know, that they were going to stay together. Uh, and it's kind of shocking that he would betray her other than the fact that he's, you know, obviously the psychopath. Uh, but then that last look that she gives to the Zeppelin right before she blows is just, yeah. oh, chef's yeah. kiss. Amazing. You know, like what a great moment. She saves the day. Yeah. She's the one who gets the explosive device out of the mine and then blows it up outside the mine. And doesn't she's leave the reason behind. Yeah. He's like, take it up. I'm too heavy. And she's like, get on. Like, I'm, you know, are you kidding me? Like, I'm saving you too. She saves everybody. Yeah. It's terrific. And again, as you said, it's not because Bond, you know, turned her anyway. It's because, you know, she firstly feels slighted that, you know, she thought she was going to conquer the world with this crazy guy who wants to flood Silicon Valley. And uh, the whole time he, she was just a cast off to him, which is unacceptable for someone like Mayday. Uh, gives such a great balance to that character who's not just like this crazy killer, but is actually has uh, reasons for doing what she's doing. And when those reasons are taken away, she's going to respond to it. You know, I yeah. really like that. So she is terrific. Uh, and, the, and the car wash uh, murder of Tibbet is terrifically shot too. Although who takes a rolls out to an automated car wash? Seriously? Um, Oof, yeah. <laughs> he deserved to die. Uh, I love it. Cubby Broccoli's Rolls Royce. It was, it was. And yeah, all yeah. the horse stuff too is Cubby Broccoli. Like he, owns, he owned tons of thoroughbreds and he was a big, mm. you know, horse buyer and racer. So that's all. I mean, this is like probably the most... Cubby Broccoli Bond movie yeah. ever made. Um, I like that Zoran does get that little mini massacre before he has his big one. <laughs> He's kind of yeah. having an, uh, like an appetizer before he moves on to yeah. murder Spr- all these innocent Spraying innocent people with machine gun fire. Yeah. That's a scene that was built for Christopher Walken to sink his teeth into. <laughs> it's great. And yeah, so it is funny to think about this film and wonder how they got from going undercover at a horse race, a horse auction to the top of the golden gate bridge at the end. It's not the most, you know, thought out plot of any of the bond films. And like you said, it may very well be even more ridiculous than Moonraker in terms of uh, some of the stuff they throw in, but it works. Yeah. It really works. Cause it's just, it's never boring. You always get something, even in the scenes where it's leading up to meeting Zorin, you get the chemistry between Warren and Mc, uh, McNee to, to enjoy. 
Uh, and he had these little subplots like uh, the Russian agent showing up and him hooking up with her, uh, which was supposed to be apparently triple X from spy who loved me, but they did, mm-hmm. you know, at the last minute they couldn't get her. Um, there's just always something interesting and cool going on. And they just loaded the deck with uh, between Christopher Walken and uh, Grace Jones and Dolph Lundgren in the background. And even uh, Alison duty herself as Jenny flex. Um, some just cool stuff thrown into this movie. And there's even another great skeet chase that opens the film. Uh, you know, that, and you know, that was cut between Switzerland and Iceland. And there's like, I think four different stunt performers that double for Roger Moore in, in that sequence in total. Um, he invents snowboarding, uh, (laughs) could have really, really done without California girls. Um, in that open again, John Glenn sometimes doesn't have the temperature of the film uh, at hand all the time. But I think, other than that, it's a, an, another Aces uh, opening sequence for a Bond film. At least after uh, the Beach Boys, you know, or the faux Beach Boys, they can't even get the actual yeah. song in there. Um, at least it's mercifully short, and then goes right back to you know the John Barry score, and you know, uh, back to the action sequences. You know, it's something. Uh, and I agree. I like the Duran Duran song a lot. I took a lot of flack for being a Duran Duran defender uh, recently on a podcast, but I, you know, it's a fun song. I think it's one of the last things they did right before their first big breakup. Yeah. Yeah. They were uh, having a lot of troubles while they were even recording the song. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so it's fun and it's a good send off for Roger Moore. Um, you know what, John, before we get into the Timothy Dalton movies, I, I want to propose something to you that you have not heard yet and have never thought of. How about we end the episode here and do Timothy Dalton as a part two to this 80s Bond marathon? That sounds great because I'm a Timothy Dalton defender. I love him as James Bond. I love him as an actor. And I think he deserves uh, some prime focus on his own so we can... Um, defend him from all of the naysayers fair enough man let's do that let's let's say we're ending here on the roger moore era uh and then we'll pick up uh in our next episode it'll be part two of 80s bond with the two timothy dalton the two only timothy dalton films it's always always feels weird to say that that there were only two Mm. uh, because he left such an impact at least for me that it feels like there were more uh and we're going to finish it off with that so uh last thoughts then on mr roger moore's bond era um, obviously we like these films a lot. I love some of these films. Um, and I don't, and I think you can have a world where Connery and Moore are, you know, exist just like Kirk and Picard exist and you can love both of them. And one doesn't have to be better than the other. And maybe if we all realize that, then everything will balance and America will be, you know, <laughs> what it once was. I don't know. Maybe can, all wounds can be healed if we can all agree that, there's greatness in the Connery and Moore eras of James Bond. Yeah, I think, you know, Roger Moore is just, uh, again, unassailably decent as James Bond, uh, as as the character, but, but also just amazing in the role. I think he was built to be charismatic on screen, and it's wonderful and comforting to watch him save the world over and over again. And I understand... Connery is the person that kind of built the franchise from the ground up with his kind of searing animalism and charisma. 
but I, I love that Roger Moore took the franchise in another direction and I love that he stayed with it for as long as he did because I enjoy every entry that he, he gave us even if I love some more than others but um, I'm totally blessed to have have these movies to watch over and over again I agree entirely um, so John I will see you soon then on part two of 80s Bond Timothy Dalton there uh, thank you very much John for joining me and we'll talk again soon awesome I look forward to it